Hello, welcome to the LifeBridge podcast. We exist to practice the way of Jesus, participating in God's kingdom coming in Dover as it is in heaven. My name is Tyler Saldana and I'm the pastor of our church community. We are so grateful that you're checking out our church's podcast. We pray that the Spirit uses this podcast to encourage you in your following of Jesus. We are in the season of Epiphany in the church calendar. And so uh, this morning's passage coming from the lectionary, this is a calendar that we go through. It's on a three-year cycle. The lectionary goes through uh, the annual Christian calendar, and we have three years, year A, B, and C. We're on year A right now. And so we're in Christmas tide, meaning post-Christmas, or what's called... Uh, the Epiphany, which is um, the season God making himself manifest. It's this time where we walk through either the life of Jesus or the life of Jesus manifest in the church. And so, as we're walking through Corinthians, uh, the first couple chapters, the next couple weeks, those are the passages that are coming in the lectionary, uh, we'll see, hopefully see, where they do have Jesus coming through and where Jesus is uh, maybe failing to shine through And maybe it's not on Jesus' part, but actually on them. So that's what we're doing here. I'm going to read this morning's passage. We're in 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 10. And then I will read a prayer. um, And then we will begin. Okay. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 10. It says, Now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you, be in agreement, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same purpose. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you, my brothers and sisters. What I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel, and not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ might not be emptied of its power. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. I'm going to read a prayer. You don't have to read it, but I just sometimes like to read written prayers already from a hymnal. So this is a prayer from the lectionary from Vanderbilt Divinity School. Holy God, you gather the whole universe into your radiant presence and continually reveal your Son as our Savior. Bring healing to all wounds, make whole all that is broken, speak truth to all illusion, and shed light in every darkness, that all creation will see your glory and know your Christ. Amen. Uh, We live in a time of extreme polarization. Uh, As we walk through our weeks, it's difficult not to be placed or place others in a box, right? Uh, Nowadays, it seems like we view people and businesses and anything in between through our political or sociological lenses. So, conservatives eat at Chick-fil-A, liberals go to Starbucks, uh, conservatives shop at Walmart, liberals go to Target, uh, conservatives wear Wrangler, liberals wear Levi's, conservatives often buy American companies of cars and liberals buy foreign cars. And, and Tesla's kind of taking the swing right now as Elon Musk kind of takes the swing and, and fluctuates. Uh, but, you know, we, we kind of view things and products and things like that through a lens. We right away put people in a box, and maybe we ourselves identify within a box. We've been uh, fine-tuned or conditioned to view people through a lens. Last spring, Pew Research published findings that indicate a five-decades-long growth in the ideological gap of politicians in the U.S. Congress. Now, according to their findings, both parties have grown more ideologically cohesive. There are now only about two dozen 
moderate Democrats and Republicans left on Capitol Hill versus more than 160 in 1971 and 72, meaning those 160 were more willing to negotiate. Nowadays, we're at a standstill every time, right, in, in our own political uh, spectrum here in the states. Another finding they had was both parties have moved further away from the ideological center since the early 70s. Democrats have ever, on average have become somewhat more liberal while Republicans on average have become much more conservative. Uh, the poll is, oh, I'll show you that in a second. The geographic and demographic makeup of both congressional parties has changed dramatically. Nearly half of House Republicans now come from southern states while nearly half of House Democrats are black, Hispanic, or Asian Pacific Islander. So we've kind of, even amongst states, we've kind of conglomerated and we're in similar areas now. We saw this a lot post-2020, right, or in the midst of 2020. I know from the West Coast where I was, a lot of people left uh, during the Black Lives Matter stuff or COVID rules, and then I know people who went to it. Uh, and so it kinda, we kind of huddled where we wanted to be, where we felt uh, a part of. Similarly, so while the positions of our elected officials have grown further and further apart, the separation is not confined to Congress. Uh, a CBS poll from 2021 shows that 41% of Democrats, 57% of Republicans view those affiliated with the opposing party not simply as someone they disagree with, but as actual enemies. It's a big jump. This has been increasing over recent decades. Uh, Jennifer McCoy and Benj uh, Benjamin Press of the Carnegie Endowment International Peace uh, and nonpartisan think tank in DC posed this question what happens when democracies become perniciously polarized or detrimentally polarized? They write, the United States is quite alone among the ranks of perniciously polarized democracies in terms of its wealth and democratic experience. Of the episodes since 1950 where democracies were polarized, all of those aside from the US involved less wealthy, less long-standing governments. So we have this unique we're in a unique place here in the States, many of which had democratized quite recently. None of the wealthy consolidated democracies of East Asia, Oceania, or Western Europe, for example, have faced similar levels of polarization for such an extended period as us in the States. So we're distinct in its longevity and our development. Uh, typically this happens, we just saw the recent stuff in Brazil, right, in light of their elections. Uh, and so, this type of stuff doesn't typically happen in developed nations, and in particular with one as us who has been a leader in the free world. Now, they, they find two causes based on their research. The U.S. is perhaps alone in experiencing a, demo, a demographic shift that poses a threat to the white population. Uh, this is happening in, in Western Europe as well as uh, communities are accepting more immigrants and People are intermarrying and things like that. It's, it's kind of changing and evolving. Uh, if you watch the show, uh, Slow Horses, they kind of season one had this whole storyline going on in the UK, a similar type of uh, story going on there. Um, it's allowing political leaders to exploit insecurities surrounding this loss of status or just questioning. The second thing they point out is the two parties reinforce, reinforce so both sides reinforce urban, rural, religious, secular, racial, ethnic cleavages, rather than promoting cross-cutting cleavages, meaning unity, harmony, working together, how we can form a better and more perfect union, if you will. With partisanship now increasingly tied to other kinds of social identity, effective polarization is on the rise, with voters perceiving the opposing party in negative terms and as a growing threat to the nation. Have we felt this? Does this feel familiar to you? Uh, furthermore, Christian polling, a Christian polling firm in the Barna Group, I've, I've referenced them before, they found that while adults are more willing to listen to other adults since 2015, they are also much more likely to feel threatened. So no longer does a different feel like different. It feels hostile. I first noticed this with uh, working with Gen Z as a youth pastor, uh, this confrontation, the inability to handle someone questioning or confronting, but it's actually affecting us too as adults and older generations. 
Uh, we typically look down on the younger ones. I think we all do it to the pre, uh, following generations, but this is actually affecting all the way up to our older generations. We use words and phrases like groomers, fascists, indoctrinators, existential threats. That phrase is on the rise in our discourse, existential threats. Uh, even with Nazi Germany, the president at the time didn't utilize that term for Nazi Germany. But almost every, every, every political day, a headline has some sort of existential threat, right? Climate change, LGBTQ, uh, the, defund the police, whatever, all these things, existential threat to democracy. We hear this term a lot. The, these, our language, our discourse has been elevated. It's fear-inducing, it's dividing. We in the US are living in this uniquely divided period of time. And unfortunately for us in the church, we're not immune to this division. Now back in 64, ahead of much change that would come and, and we've seen and are uh, recipients of it, uh, it's been attributed to Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. that he said Sunday morning was the most segregated hour of Christian America. We don't know for sure if he said that, but it is attributed to him. And so since then, since that division, we have seen much repairs, right? We have seen um, improvement. It has been slow, it's been steady though. We see that, we can track that. And yet, the segregation or division manifests in often different ways. It manifests now a little bit more on uh, political ideologies. Um, the, the mantra goes that there's no longer purple churches, there's kind of red and blue churches as denominations continue to split. We've seen this division manifest in denominations over the last couple decades, particularly splitting over differing views on human sexuality and gender. Uh, Lutherans, Reformed, Methodists, Presbyterians, Baptists, Anglicans, and yes, us Mennonites. If you are unfamiliar with our church's history, we departed from the Mennonite USA a few years ago largely due to the denomination's shift towards a fully affirming view of LGBTQ plus Christians. We continue to draw lines and go in different ways. No longer friend but foe, no longer neighbor but enemies, no longer siblings in Christ but of, dare we say, Satan sometimes is posed. Now I'm not saying that of us with our experience, but it's more just part of the what's been going on. And we are not immune to the, the separations. And so as we, la as we saw last week, Paul is largely confronting division, both within the church and between him and the Corinthian church. He's departed from them a little bit while back. He's now received a report. We learned that it's from a gal named Chloe from her house. Uh, this means she's either a wealthy business owner or she is leading a, at one of the house churches in, Corinthians, or in Corinth. We don't really know a lot about her. Um, but we do know who she potentially sent do the, uh, at the end of 1 Corinthians. Now, he's not so much teaching or refining their doctrine, but confronting or dismantling their way of thinking. That's why he's often saying, remember, I alluded last week, don't you know, or if anyone thinks this, they are. He's referring to their way of thinking, and he's trying to show it's not in line with the truth of the gospel. It's not in line with the ethics of the kingdom. So moving through our passage, I think we'll see the sovereign relevance that Paul's words have for us today in our politics, in our community, and in our church. So I'm going to walk through the passage briefly, and then just try and give us three broad areas that we can try and apply it to ourselves. We're all in different areas, and so we'll let the Spirit do the work. Starting in verse 10, let's talk about it. Paul writes, now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, this, this word parakalo, parakalo, it's an appeal. This is a pretty early place in a, in a writing of Paul. He's starting off right away making a plea. Later on, it comes after like a lot of lovey-dovey, nice stuff. He's getting right down to it. We need to get down to brass tacks. You guys are divided. There is a problem. So he's He's already calling them to something. He's charging them. This isn't Paul's opinion. That's why he says, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, there's these little indicators here where Paul is trying to not just 
boast on his own apostolicity, apostolicity, sure, Uh, but more so on the basis of Jesus. This is in his name, and this anticipates the baptism conversion that will come towards the end of this passage, but he utilizes this word, Adelphoi, Uh, that's where we get Philadelphia, city of brotherly love, Adelphia, Adelphoi, Uh, that's where brotherly love, Adelphoi means brothers, Uh, a lot of our translations, the one we utilize today, that I utilize adds brothers and sisters. Uh, we know from context that this talks through both, refers to both men and women. This is used 21 times in this letter, and there's this, um, well, for, for conciseness sake, uh, I will say we know from context in other, of, other letters of Paul that this includes both women. It's just part of the masculine, feminine language of that day. And so some of your translations may say, I'm talking about the men and the women. This isn't just uh, between the men. So, why is it... Um, one little side note here. Why, why do some translations take that, that approach? It's translating only the men and then adding the men and the women, brothers and sisters. Uh, have we noticed this before, that some translations will keep just the masculine pronouns and some will add masculine and feminine? An inclusive translation. Uh, just to give you a little two-minute thing there, uh, the reason why some will, will hold to it and keep it just with masculine pronouns, this will be more like your ESV, your NKJV will keep that. Uh, they want to keep it more exactly how it was written in the Greek and the Hebrew, whereas some other translations will go more on the spectrum of trying to give you more of what is implied and contextualize it today. We do that in a lot of things. There's a lot of things that are very interesting in translation because um, we're about seven layers removed from the original manuscripts and now, and so every culture language, we've got to contextualize the way we translate, and that's why we constantly update and come up with new translations because language is always adapting. It's always evolving, and so we too have to uh, update our translations because Uh, trying to contextualize and make the language more appropriate and accessible for the generation and context that we're in. Does that make sense? So, little side side note tangent there. Um, Okay, let's keep going here. He encourages them, have this same mind and purpose amongst you. Now, he's not saying uh, to have to everyone think the same way, right? He's calling for unity, not uniformity. This isn't saying you all have to think exactly the same way, other than the thought of have this mind of Christ, which the mind of Christ we know from Philippians 2 is this humility, this willingness to put our desires, our preferences, and so forth, seconds, way lower down the totem pole, to our brothers and sisters in Christ. So that is the same mind and purpose that Paul is referring to. He's not saying you've all got to believe the same thing. There are some core things, yes, but they're going to have some differences here. So what does this mean? Well, the negative statement means no divisions among you. That's, that's kind of what he's referring to here. This term he's utilizing, it's, it doesn't totally convey, but there's this tear amongst them. You picture a fabric, there's been a tear, and he's calling them to be re-knit, sewn together, uh, if you've ever ripped your jeans or, or a nice sweater, something that you want to hold on to and you sew it back up, there may still be a stitching sometimes. Some artsy people may make it look cool, and sometimes it can look cool, right? It's like it almost can be beautiful, trendy. Seeing the scar, the trend line, there's something there. There's a story there that this was broken, but there's been a meshing together, a bringing together again. And that's not them. That's the gospel manifesting amongst them, in and through them. Uh, Keep going in verse 11. Paul says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people. We already touched on Chloe. Um, But yeah, she's likely sent either family members or uh, some of her employees to Ephesus. That's where Paul is in this time. To give him a report of what's been going on since he last was at Corinth. And actually, since the previous letter, we talked about last week that there is a Corinthians before, 1 Corinthians, that we don't actually have. It has not been preserved. But so we know there's a lot of back and forth going on here. 
And so they returned to Ephesus and they communicated to Paul per Chloe. Um, this isn't within their letter that they send to Paul, it seems like, but it is from other people. And this is right here what he's sharing here, these corals, that there are corals among you, my brothers and sisters. It's indicative of the problem. There's this lack of self-awareness that they've got to reach out. They don't even realize uh, that, you know, the illustration is, does a fish know that they're wet, right? It's, does the Corinthian church understand that there are issues here? They are so numb, they're so complacent and in it that someone from the outside comes in and he's like, whoa, you're a fish, you're wet, you're in water. <laughs> and the fish is like, what do you mean I'm in water, right? What do you mean there's division amongst us? And so Chloe is sending that out to Paul. Paul's receiving this and that's where he's responding. Keep going, verse 12. It says, what I mean is that each of you says I belong to Paul or I belong to Apollos or I belong to Cephas, that's Peter, or I belong to Christ. A few notes on these, that Christ, it isn't like someone who's finally, what this is, is like the equivalent for us today is, um, you know, I'm, I'm not with that church who just had the scandal that's hitting all the headlines. I'm not a Southern, like I'm with this denomination or I'm with this denomination. And then the I'm with Christ is not like the actual good one. It's the people that are like, man, I'm not with any of them. It's just me and Jesus. I'm non-denominational. It's me and my Bible. Like, it's those people. And then there's like a self-righteousness to those people. It's not like, oh, the fourth one's got it. No, no, no. It's those people who are like, they see the people who are like, I'm with Apollos or Paul or Peter. And they're like, those guys. They fell for it. They're victims. They're, they're, they're following some preacher rather than Jesus. But we're with Jesus. It's like, well, even that can be a stigma in itself, a problem in itself. It might even be a, a log in their eye versus a speck for the others. Paul continues, has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you or were you baptized in the name of Paul? These are rhetorical questions, obviously. He's, he's showing them, he's unpacking the, dare I say, stupidity of their uh, approach to this, the way they are relating and identifying. Hey, I'm a follower of this person or this person. It's interesting, we talk a lot about, um, I bring up the Protestant Reformation a bit and how we responded to the Roman Catholic Church quite a bit, and we were like, okay, a lot, some of the negatives we refined, we reformed, right? That's why it's called the Reformation. But we also sometimes reform things that we probably shouldn't have. And the interesting thing is, from then on, we started uh, naming denominations after people again. So we were Mennonites, right? We followed a person, Lutherans, Calvinists. Uh, we kind of brought that back. We kind of brought back the Paulos and, and Peter and Paul. It's kind of interesting. Rather than, no, we're the church of Jesus. We're all Jesus. We started identifying with different people. I'm of this theology framework, and I follow this person. But so Paul is saying, this isn't a valid way of thinking. This isn't how, what the gospel has called you to. He continues on in verse 14. He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. As a pastor, I just find that to be weird to say that. Like, I feel like that'd be so weird for me to look at you all and man, I'm so glad I didn't baptize any of you guys. Like, it just sounds kind of harsh, right? Um, <laughs> like, that would be, if someone told me that, like, that's just such a Jesus juke of a Christian to be like, I'm glad I didn't baptize you. Like, what is that? It just seems so mean and condescending. But keep going here. He says, so, uh, yeah, I think God I didn't baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. Uh, we know of them. Crispus, we, he came up in Acts 18. Gaius, there's a Gaius in Acts 19 and 20. Um, the, the cool thing about the epistles, if you've never read the book of Acts, it's really cool to see the interwoven, like how the letters fit in with Paul's journeys and some of Peter's journeys. So you, we can kind of trace some of these people, but it seems like Gaius is a different person uh, that is referenced in Romans 16. So these are some of his companions. But then what does Paul do for the next couple verses? He says, so that none of you can say that you were baptized in my name. He doesn't want to give them any reason to be like, I'm a Paulite, or I'm a Paul, you know, I'm a disciple of Paul. He doesn't want to give them any of that option. And then they throw in verse 16, I love it, there's no parentheses in, in Greek at that point, but we translate it this way, we add this parentheses because we can see through some of the context that he's kind of like, oh wait. And that's what this is here in verse 16, he says, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus, 
Beyond that, though, I actually don't remember whether I baptized anyone else. But, but even that is kind of a dig. It's like, that's how insignificant who baptized you is. The fact that you got baptized is the big deal, but who did it does nothing for you. It's not like you're going to get to Jesus at the end of the age and he's going to be like, oh, you were baptized by someone? You come in, I've got this place over here for you. Like, does nothing. And so to, to separate yourself, to esteem yourself as better than someone in your church because of some affiliation with another human being church leader or a rejection of a certain church leader, that doesn't make you any holier. It doesn't change your standing with God. This little note here of I did baptize household of Stephanus, common in Greek culture that, uh, in particular the male, that if the male uh, trans, uh, commits to a different religion or faith, uh, the whole household would join. And so um, we don't have time to unpack it. Some would say this might be an argument for infant baptism. Uh, I don't think that's enough there to say that, but that is just kind of throws a little like, huh, what is that about? Why did we do that? But anyways, verse 17, Paul says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel. This was my job description. It wasn't to baptize. It was to proclaim the gospel and not with eloquent wisdom so that the cross of Christ might not be emptied of its power. Now, I've, I've heard this misused, like, hey, ministers shouldn't quote scholarly stuff or uh, be that educated or, you know, there isn't a point to talk that uh, crafty or anything of that sort. That's not what Paul is saying here with the eloquent wisdom. He's actually referring to uh, something that they engaged in. Uh, remember, if you recall last week, the, the province that they're in, Achaia, Corinth is the city there that it is Roman. Um, it's rebuilt by Rome, so it's got this beautiful Roman architecture, this feel of a Roman city, but it has the Greek culture and accolades and a lot of this knowledge. And so this is a place where people are rolling into town, they're doing their speaker circuit there, and they're coming in and just kind of doing their talks, whether it be wisdoms or... Um, some sort of, yeah, cool public speaking thing. Think of more of like an academic type town, a setting, a college town where you just often have these visiting public speakers. Uh, that, you know, the, the thing that comes to mind for me is uh, a lot of people, I don't know if you have these people in your circles, but a lot of people I know around here are going to see Hamilton, right? That there was big hype that Hamilton's touring and it's coming to Cleveland and they're here for a couple weeks and let's go see Hamilton. It's kind of like that, like everyone's coming to town and we're gonna go, are you going? Are you, when are you going? It's not are you going, when are you going? And that's the same thing here. This was a, that was the fill of Corinth, that when people came into town, oh, who's talking tonight at that place? Let's go see that. And so when he's saying, I didn't come speaking with eloquent wisdom, we know that he did because literally in the previous paragraph, we can't see it that well, but he's literally using their rhetorical devices here. Um, and I won't get too much into grammar there, but anyways, Hope that clarifies some things for you. But he's saying, I didn't come speaking along the lines of the way your uh, speakers teach. But I came boasting in the cross, that the, Christ, that the cross of Christ might not be emptied of its power. And why? Verse 18, this will be in this week's passage and next week's passage. Kind of bookends, ties them together. You've got this header there. I personally despise headers in Bible translations because it disrupts the flow. Um, I think this ties together here. Verse 18, he says, For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So, back up to verse 17 for me in a second. Because I want to tie these two together. For Christ didn't send me to baptize. That sounds contradictory to the Great Commission. If you recall at the end of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says, go into all the world, baptize. Make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So Paul's like, God didn't call me to that. Well, I thought everyone was called to the Great Commission. I think the point here is that Paul is saying, while baptism is important, it's not bearing on one's salvation. So if you die without getting baptized, I don't think that separates you from God. 
whereas some denominations, like Baptists, in some cases, some of their denominations would uh, lean more towards that side, that you have to be baptized physically, and, and whether it be through immersion or all those types of debates. I don't think that's exactly what Paul is saying here. He's more uh, elevating that my bigger goal is discipleship. You becoming a follower of Jesus. The baptism is the outflowing, the response to your following of Jesus. So, and then he says, I came proclaiming the gospel. Now, what is the gospel that he is referring to? If you have a Bible, I don't have it up on the screen, but he's saying the gospel. It's in 1 Corinthians 15. That's where he is referencing. And I'm just going to read it briefly for us. He says in chapter 15, verse 1, he said, I I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news, that's the same word there, the gospel that I proclaim to you, which you in turn received, in which you also stand, and through which you also are being saved. Notice again that language. Paul keeps using that language, being saved. Not that you are saved. It's a process. Kind of interesting. Ongoing, being saved. It says, if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you, unless you have come to believe in vain. And so what is that message? He says, For I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter, to Cephas, then He appeared to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Uh, some of you may ask, hey, our gospel message, our gospel accounts of Jesus' life, uh, Jesus doesn't appear to Cephas first. He appears to women first. Notice here that Paul cuts them all out. It's kind of an interesting little thing. It kind of is him speaking to his contemporary context there, speaking to the Corinthian church, because females, their witness wouldn't have been credible but it is kind of an interesting thing. Some skeptics will look at that and say, there's a discrepancy in your scripture. Um, well, I don't totally negate that. That's not a good argument there because this is Paul speaking to a particular people. He's summarizing who is uh, a commendable witness. Anyways, he says, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James and the apostles, last of all, uh, to one ultimately born, he appeared, or untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I'm the least of the apostles. Okay, that gospel message. Notice what it is. It's simple. What is it? Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. He was buried, he was raised, and he appeared. That's the message he says he proclaimed to them. That's the thing that they are to have unity around. I would encourage us to consider what is not included in that. There's not a lot, right? But we've divided over a lot of things that are not in that original gospel statement. We debate often, wait, are they in our camp? Are they Christian because they think this way about baptism or this way about the scriptures? Or, and it's like, Paul's like, hey, my main thing was Christ died. He was buried. He was raised. He appeared. He is alive. He is king now. That's the big thing. Everything else, have the same mind to be in unity together. Be a demonstration that there will be differing views amongst those other things, but this is the main thing. The cross of Christ, the burial of Christ, the resurrection, the appearance of Christ. Death no more has a sting because of that. New life is here in and through the resurrected Christ. I want to get, as I wrap up, just to some practical things. As, as my Sundays wind down here, you know, I've just been spending some time praying and asking the Spirit, you know, what, what do you want me to... It's not like I'm dying, but it, it does feel like, hey, what, what, what are some last words you want to speak and want me to share? How can I encourage and, and, and leave LifeBridge well? And so... Uh, I I just wanted to speak to the three categories I brought up earlier. How does this passage speak to the lives of Jesus' followers for us today? So we're going to go big. 
because I think there's some trickle-down stuff. We're going to start politics, we're going to go community, and we're going to go to local church. Sound good? You're like, oh no, those all sound... Uh, here we go. <laughs> okay, politics. Uh, I'm just going to read from a gentleman, uh, a scholar from Vanderbilt University down in Tennessee, a uh, Catholic school down there, uh, but he's a reverend. His name is Dr. Clay Stoffer. He's a professor of American studies at Vanderbilt. He considers the responsibility of the church in America as we live in these divided, tense times. He writes, Christianity now stands at a crossroads, in particular here. Will it continue to contribute to the ongoing polarization of America, or will it be an antidote for a nation's troubles? Will followers of Christ work more diligently and seriously to live out Jesus' final prayer the night before his crucifixion, that, quote, they may all be one so that the world may believe? Can Christianity be part of the solution and not just part of the problem? Now, he offers four tasks for the church in America in order to rise to the challenge. So it should be up on the screen. First, we've talked a lot about this before. This is a part of our Anabaptist roots. Primary allegiance must return to Christ not to political party or figure. Idolatry is real, Politician or, and politics is a common form of idolatry. Political figures are not saviors. Christians must focus more on Jesus, less on partisan politics, especially partisanship cloaked in hero worship. Too often I have heard from brothers and sisters on uh, both sides of the aisle, I can't believe, pointing to the other side of the aisle, I don't know how a Christian could be over there. I don't know how they could vote over there or believe different than me. That's okay. We all have limited knowledge. I don't sometimes, I, and I feel that way too sometimes. I'm like, what? How could you believe that's possible? Um, and God's probably laughing at us, right? He's like, you're, you're just one of, what are we, we broke 8 billion this last year? So you're one of 8 billion alive at this point in human history. You don't know everything. You barely know anything. It's okay. Take that lack of understanding to God and know the commands, know the call to love that brother and sister across the aisle or in between the aisle and so forth. Or if you're in the middle, both sides. And man, if you're outside the game, you're like, I'm not even in the building. Uh, love them. The house is burning. Go help get them out. Uh, <laughs> anyways. We are called to love those. Our primary allegiance is to Christ, not political ideology or idolatry. Secondly, civility and open dialogue must be revived. This, is, this was noted earlier, right? That as we're talking with someone, maybe even at your own table, where, man, we have some totally different view. Some of us have had these conversations over lunches or coffees where it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm that guy you're, you're saying is ridiculous, or you're that person that I'm like, what? Uh, <laughs> but we're still at the table, right? We're still at the table. We're still here. We need to be able to not feel afraid or condemned or even uh, threatened by the other person. And this takes both sides. This takes the person conveying to not convey my view in a way that demeans the others, this happens, this is on politics, but guess what? This goes down for friendships, for marriages, for, and everything. That, man, if my wife and I disagree, and I'm like, yeah, if the, you know, anyone who wants to raise our kids this way is a total idiot. And, and that's the way my wife wants to view it, and I know it. Uh, that, that probably isn't, she's not going to hear that well, right? No, you share, hey, this is why, and this is, you know, here's the motivating factors behind me. This is why I see it this way. Can you tell me why? you see it differently. Interesting. Ask a lot of questions. And we may not come to agreement, but somehow God's united us. Her and I are one. This happens quite a bit. Quite a bit, huh? And yet we're still one. We're still Saldana. We're still Aaron and Tyler. So it goes for LifeBridge. So it goes for churches. So it goes for us, your community, where you're at. It goes all the way back up the totem pole, the bigger cloud of politics. Let's keep going. So we need this dialogue. We need to be able to have healthy conversation modeled by our congregants inside and outside the sanctuary. I am one who's like, 
I don't think churches should be like, hey, we're like, let's get behind this candidate. But I'm also like, let's not pretend politics don't exist. Uh, we're allowed to talk about this stuff. The gospel affects all of our life. And God's made each of you, red and blue, purple, wherever you're at politically, in the image of God, we can discuss this and sharpen each other in a way that is not condemning. But when it gets to condemning, that probably shows you where your God is. Your gods are showing. When you start feeling that like, oh no, I'm losing control. Or if this goes here, when, it, when your temperature starts rising, that's what in counseling, our counselors would show, we actually had to early on wear a pulse monitor. And when it got to a certain pulse, we had to stop. Because at that point, we knew our gods were, were manifesting. Where we were placing our hope in, other than Jesus, was showing up. It was coming to the surface. The kettle was boiling. So when you start getting mad about politics or some other conversation with someone, stop, check the log in your eye before the speck in the other, and ask, what might my body be telling me about who I believe I am in Christ? And how does the Gospel speak to that differently? How does the Gospel speak truth to that? How does it lower that temperature, that bodily temperature and angst. Third, third suggestion for politics he recommends. If Christianity is going to be part of the solution, we must begin to intentionally move away from politically homogenous congregations, red or blue, that serve as holy echo chambers. I love that. We must work to create a purple church culture. Uh, for us in an area that is particularly one uh, more, but we're not totally, right? Uh, we do, it's the same thing like where we lived in the west or in Seattle, and then well, Southern California, we lived in a, in a red area, but in Seattle area, we lived in a kind of like a 55-45 split, and it was like, oh, it's all blue. It's like, well, no, there's actually quite a bit of red. And same here, if you look at who voted for who here, there's definitely blue here. Um, and even in this body, there's blue. And so that makes us somewhat purple. We might be a little more, I don't know what the mixed is on the color spectrum, and I'm color deficient, so I can't really tell you. But I know we might be closer to red than blue, but still, there are, is a mix here, and our community has that mix. We'll get to that in a second. But we need to be a place that allows that space. Because when we become homogenous, meaning one or the other, it, it could inhibit our ability to connect with a community outside the walls who does not relate there. It could. It doesn't have to, but it could if that becomes the dividing lines, if those are the walls we erect around our church. Finally, he says, unity cannot happen until we remember Christ's ultimate command to love. We have been scared into selfishness. The opposite of love has never been hate. The opposite of love is selfishness. An isolating, inward focus based on fear. We get a lot of fear-mongering in politics, right? We even get it in church stuff, too. We get it everywhere. That's where that existential crisis, crisis crises have come from, Yes? There's always something we've got to be afraid of. Every morning on Apple News, I feel like there's a, at least one of the top four articles is like something I've got to be terrified about. My whole world needs to change. That's a different type of gospel, and it's not very good news, but those often can be the headlines. And those are often the marketing techniques of politicians, yes? Be afraid of that other person. They are not your neighbor. They are your nemesis. So our fractured political allegiances have then, this will take us to the community part, they've negatively affected the way we love and connect with our community, in particular those who do not fit into, who do not look or believe like us, specifically those who are not in our tribe or group, right? So we think this through with our community, for example, um, I mean even right across the street, right? It's a Christian church that uh, they are LGBTQ affirming. They have stuck in a denomination they are fully affirming of LGBTQ Christians. Or we talk three blocks down the street, coffee shop got bought, 
got a bright, a big old progress pride flag up. If you're unfamiliar with that, it's the newest pride flag uh, for LGBTQ plus Christians. You got those are the trans colors and these are black and brown lives matter. So this is the most up to date, they constantly update it. But this is right down the street on the main strip in Dover. If we're not aware of this, I, I've, I've had many talks with people where it's like, that's not here in Dover. No, it's, we don't know our city then. We don't know our neighbors. Those are our neighbors. They are here, and there's some in this room too. Statistically speaking, some of our kids will work through this and have to uh, reconcile with this. So what we can't pretend and solely be a homogenous zone, and I'm not advocating for changing your theological position. I'm not doing that. I'm more saying how do we love and serve our community? How do we become hands and feet in Dover, in Philly, in Tusk, in homes, where these people are? They are not nemesis. They are neighbors. They are not foreigners. They are, they can be your friends. They should be your friends. The thing this also does when we, when we allow these types of political ideologies or social things that are placed up like a flag, like a sign, um, the other one that comes up, what's the next one? Uh, this, have we seen these around town? These were a lot more prevalent in the Northwest, but there's quite a few even on Worcester that come up. Uh, there's quite a few right down here in Dover. I see them all over town. They are here. The sign definitely identifies something. Um, there's quite a few interesting ones, but if we pretend or just kind of are numb and acting like, man, what do I, I don't even know what to do, it's okay. Let's talk about it. There's actually a really cool book that talks through each of these statements and gets down the theology of them and then talks through, okay, how can we engage and where is their truth? Is there truth? Where, yeah. And then how does the gospel speak into that? But these, when, when we allow these signs or flags or things of that sort to become a wall, a hindrance between us and a community, it perpetuates the problem. It ignores the person who's working at that place or the person who identifies there, that sees themselves represented there. They don't see them in our homogenous gathering or close to homogenous gathering. You know, the, the urban centers have often been this place, uh, typically why they are often so uh, liberal, whatever you want to call it, is because they tend to be the place where the people who are outcasts of the homogenous suburbs and rural areas, they go to escape, right? They go to be themselves, is how they would identify. I'm not saying that is, valid, that is true, I'm saying potentially there's some validity to their desire to feel not ostracized. Right? And it's unfortunate that they have to leave to get somewhere where they feel at home. That's unfortunate for us. How can we be better at loving our community in particular? How can we, LifeBridge, stop going to the Christian coffee shops and go befriend and be there a couple times a week at the shops where you're like, hey, this person needs love too. Guess what? Your Christian coffee shop, they know Jesus. Let's do the work. Let's do the actual work. Let's go meet people who, and who's to say? They might know Jesus, but they might not. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know them, but neither do you, and that's the point. That's the point behind these. There are people there that we don't want these to be walls that keep us from loving our neighbors. This isn't in Cleveland or Columbus. This is in Dover and in Philly. My question to you is, are you in Dover or Philly? Or are you in some bubble. Don't let the divisions divide you from your community, LifeBridge. We won't be a light if we are, if we allow that to happen. Last thing, particularly for our church. Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's a pretty big statement. It makes you wonder, like, hey, man, why doesn't everyone know that, that he's God? Oh, that must mean we don't love one another that well. Um, 
But no, that's, that's the promise there that God has given us, that Jesus has said to his people, everyone will know that you are my disciples. That's, that's literally him saying, everyone will know that I'm, I'm God by the way you love each other, if you have love for one another. And so for us as a church, what does that look like for us going forward? Let love be the marker of LifeBridge. Let that gospel message and the love it inspires be what shapes us and what people know us by. May people know us more by what we're for rather than what we're potentially against. And the life we now have versus the lives we question. May they know us for this love. And that even when it doesn't make sense, even when it's like, man, I don't know how those people are together, that's where the gospel is made evident. That somehow they're at the same table. Those people, you've got a Trump and a Biden sticker on two different cars in your parking lot. You've got a whatever, you know, you've got, <laughs> you've got opposing stickers on cars in your, in your parking lot. Somehow they are dining together. The world tells us we shouldn't be together, but we are because the gospel brings us together. May we be known for that. That's why Paul said, he brings up the Apollos, the Paul, the Cephas, the Jesus, that, you know, I'm of this person. I belong to Apollos. I belong to Peter. Man, we can do that in Christianity, right? We could do that behind our pastors or our schools of theology that we believe. Um, you know, I'm not, you know, I've been here a little shorter than, uh, than Paul was in Corinth, uh, but I, I doubt I have any Saldanaites. But if there are any in there, don't follow Jesus. Uh, you know, if you're like, man, I loved Chet. Chet was my guy, and I'm never going to find another pastor. Don't do that. He's not Jesus. Wayne, who was the other guy? Dan. Whoever comes next, it's not about them. We will all die, and we will go forth. It is about following Jesus. It is about gathering together in celebration and in seeking new life in light of this resurrected Jesus and the Spirit that He has given us now. We don't identify based on our followers, and even our denominations shouldn't have to be what we find our true identity in. It is in Christ him crucified, his resurrected. I just want to close with reading um, from Ephesians 4. It's not on the screen. I apologize. But I'm going to look at Ephesians 4. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. Otherwise, I will speak up. Ephesians 4, Paul writes, I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you, I beg you, church in Ephesus, to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What does that look like? Well, it says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Are we doing this? Are we embodying this when we're sitting across or debating on whether or not to engage with someone from a different worldview? Making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. He goes on, but each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it is said, when he ascended on high, he made captivity itself a captive he gave gifts to his people. No longer are we enslaved, essentially. We now have the Spirit of God in us, each of us gifted accordingly. In parentheses in verse 9, he says, When it says, He ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He took on our death, right? Our shame. And he came here, lived amongst us. He who descended is the same one who ascended, far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. This isn't multiple heavens. This means the skies. The gifts he gave, verse 11, were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers. Why? To equip 
the local church, the saints, the body of Christ. Each of you are saints. You are a saint if you are in Christ for the sake of ministry. Not for just the pastors or elders to go evangelize in your community. No, no, no. My job, your elders' job, whoever your ministers are, your job is to equip you to go down the road to the Pride Flag coffee shop or to go into your neighborhood or to befriend that friend or that sibling or family member in your household, whatever it may be, whoever that looks like for you. That is my job. If I were to do all the work, I failed. And why do we do this? Build up the body of Christ. Verse 13, until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. In this, we are knowing Jesus more. Some people are like, man, don't, I, just, I don't want to talk about politics or any of these things or these social issues. I just want to worship Jesus. I just want to know Jesus. Literally, it's saying like the way we know Jesus more is by regularly dying to ourselves more and more to go befriend, to go reach, to go disciple and witness to a dying world simultaneously by realizing that we're no better. And he keeps going. We must no longer... We must no longer be children tossed to and fro, blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness in deceitful scheming. What does this sound like? This sounds like really extreme left and right wing news. This sounds like the Daily Wire and the Daily Beast. This sounds like people who are trying to make you afraid of the other people rather than encouraging you to love them. Find a reason why they are a sign of the end times. Don't listen to this stuff. If their motivation is not to love someone, get rid of it. Unsubscribe. Stop watching it. Stop looking at it. It is not good for you. It is shaping you. It is the gospel you are hearing. Stop it. It's very frustrating. Continue, verse 15, but speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into Him who is the head. He's, gee, Paul is saying grow up. Stop getting into these little skirmishes. Stop falling for the Facebook little news posts that people post and these things that are outrage. They're meant to entice you and make you be mad at someone else. No, grow up in every way into Christ from whom the whole body, everyone in the body, not just the people who think like you and look like you and act like you and believe like you, everyone in the body, joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. I just want to keep reading it because I'm like, man, Ephesians is good. But I'm going to stop. Uh, (laughs) I want that to be Encouraging to us, challenging to us. LifeBridge, God is good. Jesus died for you. He was buried for you. He was resurrected for you. He's given you new life. There are bigger things at stake than what your random friend on Facebook posts for you today that you should be outraged about today until tomorrow something else happens. There are bigger things at stake. Amen? There are bigger things that we are called to do. Because the thing I was super upset about last week, don't remember it. Do you? I don't. That's why it's not a big deal. But you know what really will change people's lives is make the main thing the main thing. What Paul delivered to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15. May that be what we are shaped by. May that shape the way we engage and talk with people about politics. May that shape and help us as we live and love and serve our neighbors and our community in particular people who think and believe and live differently than us, and may we may have different views of what is faithful for a Christian to do, and even just within here, our church, right? Going forward, we've got a, a meeting tonight to talk about the next chapter. Pray for that. How will this continue to shape us as we go forward into a new chapter?
as LifeBridge Community Church. Let me pray for us. I've got a written prayer again, just because I thought this was uh, prevalent for what we discussed this morning. Oh God, you spoke your word, and you revealed your good news in Jesus the Christ. Fill all creation with that word again, so that by proclaiming your joyful promises to all nations and singing of your glorious hope to all peoples, we may become one living body, your incarnate presence on the earth. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the LifeBridge podcast. For more information about our church, please visit lifebridgedover.org. There you'll be able to find out more about the church community, our ministries, ways to get involved, recommended resources, and to give. Be sure to subscribe to receive new episodes directly into your podcast feed. While we are glad that you're checking out our podcast feed, we believe that the New Testament teaches that church worship is to be experienced weekly, in person, within your local church community. Thus, we encourage you to either join us in person for Sunday morning worship or to find and commit to a local gospel-centered church community in your neighborhood. Thanks.